Hello, I'm Janus. And I'm Tessa. Welcome to our podcast that celebrates wordiness and nerdiness and sometimes plain absurdiness. Please join us for today's episode of Your Your New New Favorite Favorite Word. Thank you all for joining us for episode 22. Since last week's episode, I hope you've all found some creative ways to insert the past tense of must into your vocabulary (laughs) without going berserk. (laughs) Listener Marissa shared an amusing meme with us about pronouncing English words that end in C-L-E-S as if they were ancient Greek names. The meme introduced us to such esteemed persons as Popsicles, (laughs) Spectacles, Vehicles, Tentacles, Barnacles, Obstacles, and Oracles, <laughs> otherwise known as Popsicles, Spectacles, Vehicles, Tentacles, Barnacles, Obstacles, and Oracles. <laughs> Marissa thought we might enjoy it, and she was absolutely right. This kind of humor is right up our alley. Absolutely. If uh, any of you ever encounter something humorous or interesting regarding language and words, definitely send it our way. We're always interested in that. For sure. So let's just kick this right off. Tessa, how about you start us with your new favorite word this week? All right. Well, this week I was thinking about words that do not sound like what they actually mean. (laughs) (laughs) So it's kind of a a wide, broad spectrum, but uh, I'll start off with some that I was thinking about. So the word crepuscular, does that sound like a positive or a negative? Definitely sounds like a negative. Yeah, kind of a gross feeling, the sound of that word. Maybe maybe because it has pus in the middle of it. Yeah, and the crep. <laughs> that hard P in the middle. Yeah, yeah, it's just not a pleasant sounding word. And obviously different people might have a different opinion about that. But to us, it sounds kind of negative. However, the meaning of crepuscular excuse me, is of or like twilight, dim. Occurring at dawn or dusk or both. So you might talk about crepuscular light or certain animals that are often seen at dawn or dusk. So bats or mosquitoes are crepuscular animals. That's kind of an interesting thing that's very different from the way the word sounds. Yeah, definitely. So a couple others that I found. Pulchritude (laughs) is an ugly, ugly sounding word. That means great physical beauty or appeal. (laughs) So almost the exact opposite of how it should sound, I feel. Bucolic sounds like some kind of medical problem to me. Right. Something unpleasant. However, it means of or characteristic of the countryside or its people. Rustic of or characteristic of shepherds or flocks. Pastoral. (laughs) Which is a pretty positive concept in our culture, I feel. Another one, this is one that I didn't know before, but nugatory, N-U-G-A-T-O-R-Y, sounds like something delicious you might find in the middle of a candy bar. (laughs) I was going to say, yeah, (laughs) give me some of that. (laughs) However, it's kind of a more negative meaning than that. It means trifling, of no value, invalid, or futile. Kind of like a candy bar. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe so. (laughs) So there are... Some other words that sound like a different word. And so when we hear it, kind of like nugatory and nougat, we have this idea in our mind that's based on the wrong word. So I'll give you some examples. Laconic. So this is a word that 
to me, for some reason, I'm not sure exactly why, sounds like it should mean lazy, laid back, or slow. It's kind of the image that comes to my mind when I hear the word laconic. However, it actually means concise or abrupt. And this comes from a word that was used in Greek. I'm referring to the region around ancient Sparta, Laconia, whose inhabitants famously cultivated the skill of saying much in few words. Interesting. That's a good skill. Yes. So this little anecdote made me laugh. When Philip of Macedonia threatened them with, If I enter Laconia, I will raise Sparta to the ground. The Spartans' reply was, If. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a lot contained in that single word. So, But this idea led to the word laconic being used in English to mean terse or abrupt. And it's very different from what you might think. So another word in this category is the color name puce. Yes. (laughs) So what English word does that sound like to you? Puke. Right. (laughs) And that's not a very pleasant association, obviously. Um, I, I used to imagine puce being a light brown, I guess, before I knew what it actually meant. And the real meaning is a deep red to dark grayish purple. And it comes from a French word that derives from their word for flea. Flea? Meaning flea-colored, like the insect, a flea. That's interesting. A deep red to dark grayish purple is the color of flea. Interesting. A flea. Yeah, so that's where the word puce comes from. Another one that we might get mixed up is limpid. You might think it sounds like limp, right? It has connotations like that. Yeah, definitely. But it actually means characterized by transparent clearness. So a limpid sky would be like a cloudless sky, very clear, which has positive connotations, right? Which is different from limp to me. Or easily or pleasantly heard, distinct. So a limpid call or a limpid sound, limpid music. Or flowing or moving gracefully, as in the limpid movements of a dancer, fascinating (laughs) and that's exactly opposite to what you might guess from limpid we have exceptionable which sounds like exceptional (laughs) yes but it actually means open or liable to objection or disapproval and we hear it more often as unexceptionable which is a positive word right because it's negating the disapproval and objection in the like everyone can approve this thing it's unexceptionable (laughs) yes right (laughs) And factitious. This one makes me laugh. Yes. <laughs> Shouldn't it be the opposite of fictitious? You would because think. fiction and fact are opposites in our minds. But factitious means produced artificially rather than by a natural process. Lacking authenticity or genuineness. A sham. <laughs> so factitious and fictitious are actually very close in meaning. Ironically, yes. yes. So those made me smile. And now we come to something that's very interesting and fun. It's a word that was coined by Jack Rosenthal in the New York Times Magazine, and I'll put the link to that article in the show notes. He talked about words that look as if they mean one thing, but mean quite another. And he said, a word that means the opposite of another is an antonym, 
And this other kind of word that he talked about, he called it a phantonym. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. So that's not actually a word you'll find in the dictionary. It's just something that's uh, colloquially used to describe this concept, but it's my new favorite word, phantonym. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> that's so clever. Yes. And so I'm going to give you some examples of those. Um, factoid. This word was coined in 1973, and it was used to describe a published statement taken to be fact because of its appearance in print. <laughs> okay. We can see how that happens quite often in our society. Oh, can't yes. We? If yes. something is repeated often enough in the media, it becomes true, right? It must be true. But the author that coined this word used factoid, the oid suffix being along the lines of humanoid or planetoid. As in vaguely <laughs> X. <laughs> yes. Sort of like a human, sort of like <laughs> a planet, sort of like a fact, right? So that was the original meaning, but it's become fairly common over time for the usage to have changed and for people to use this word to mean a brief, somewhat interesting fact. So like a bit of trivia uh -huh. is a factoid, right? <laughs> and some of the dictionary definitions talk about this as a usage problem because it's, it's not the original meaning and it hasn't fully migrated over into common usage among enough people and enough contexts to be a fully recognized dictionary word. So there's ambiguity now as to yes. what it could mean. Yes. But I, I think that's interesting that uh, a lot of these words, the phantonyms, are along this spectrum. They've meant something in the, in the past, but then because they seem like they should mean something different, they begin to be used that way, and then that eventually becomes an accepted definition as well. Fascinating. Yeah. So another example of that is the word decimate. So what feeling do you get about the word decimate? What does that mean to you? Well, I actually know this word. Okay. So No fair. <laughs> maybe don't ask me. Okay. <laughs> but what does it sound like it means? How, how do people use it often? Like to destroy, like to right. eradicate. Yeah, completely destroy, right? To raise, R-A-Z-E, like a village or something, to decimate it. Yes. But it originally comes from, as you know, Latin, and the root is desa, ten, right? They would put to death every tenth man in a city in order to make the people listen to them and pay attention. The removal or destruction of one-tenth. But here's another usage problem, right? It's being used to mean to inflict great destruction or damage, as in the storm decimated the region. To reduce markedly in amount a profligate heir who decimated his trust fund, right? This idea of yeah. completely wiping out, which is pretty much the opposite of just taking one-tenth, right? Right. Which is still pretty violent when you're talking about people. <laughs> Although it would be nice if a hurricane would come through and take out every tenth building. <laughs> yes. Don't want us to be the one we're living in, though. <laughs> yes. So that's an interesting word that's coming to mean something different yes. over time. Yeah. Another word is restive. This is a word that feels like it should mean restful, but it actually means something more along the lines of restless. One definition in the American Heritage Dictionary is uneasily impatient or hard to control, unsettled. People sometimes mistakenly use it in the opposite meaning, restful. Um, enervate, E-N-E-R-V-A-T-E. -E. Yeah, that's one that's always... <sighs> It's always bugged me, too. Yeah, it seems like it should be connected to energize or energy, right? That's what our mind 
focuses on. But the prefix, the E, is actually the same kind of prefix, prefix as X, EX, meaning away from, right? Against. So it means to weaken or destroy the strength or vitality of, or could literally mean to sever a nerve. Another one that's becoming more used uh, in the wrong way, which is now becoming right, is momentarily. So it doesn't mean in a moment, like we might say, the plane will be departing momentarily. No kidding. Okay. It actually means for a moment, for a brief period of time. So imagine your plane landing momentarily. <laughs> <laughs> Touch and go, right? Yes. <laughs> so this definition in a moment is being used more and more and it's changing in the usage. And the American Heritage Dictionary entry talks about a usage panel having resistance to the non-traditional <laughs> use, but that this has waned over time. And then another one, spendthrift. So we usually focus on the thrift part of that, and it seems like it should be related to the sense of thrifty, right? But the original meaning of thrift, one of the original meanings was savings or profits or wealth. So someone who is a spendthrift was spending their wealth, spending their profits instead of saving them. So one who spends money recklessly or wastefully. And it was interesting, it said that in Edom Online, that this word, spendthrift, replaced a word that was used more commonly in the 1500s. Two words, actually. Scattergood. Scattergood. And spendall. <laughs> oh, those are great. Yes. I want to use those instead of spendthrift. I agree. They're so much more descriptive. <laughs> so a couple of minor favorite words for me, scattergood <laughs> and spendall. Yes. But phantonym is... For sure, my new favorite word from this week. I love it. That's really cool. <laughs> Thanks. I, I love it when people take uh, an existing word like antonym and have a clever play on words with it to introduce some concept that hasn't previously been named. That's just brilliant. Yeah, I, I agree. It. I really loved that too. So thanks for listening and tell us what your new favorite word is. All right. So for me, my new favorite word this week is idiolect <laughs> yes. from the Greek Roots idio meaning personal and lect meaning dialect. And you may be familiar with this word, yes. Tessa, with your linguistic background. Yeah, absolutely. But basically, an idiolect is one's personal dialect. And this was a new concept to me when I came across this in the last couple of weeks. But it describes one's unique way of speaking, mm -hmm. uh, the, the vocabulary you use, the way you pronounce words. And in some ways, it's as specific as your own fingerprint, I guess. Like mm -hmm. everyone kind of has their own unique idiolect yes but it seems to me that it's pretty hard to really nail down your own idiolect i spent some time trying to think of what constitutes my idiolect and it was really hard and maybe you'd have some suggestions tessa like since you're looking from the outside in but here are four things that i came up with okay so my sense of humor I think contributes largely to my idiolect. I like puns and plays mm. on words. Yes. I find humor in mispronouncing things <laughs> intentionally. <laughs> Although it is funny when other people mispronounce things unintentionally, but not when I do it. <laughs> also, having studied Korean, German, and French, I find vocabulary, idioms, grammar, and pronunciation from those languages finding their way into my English. Mm. And it often winds up being used in humorous ways, which I guess ties back to my sense of humor. I also feel like I tend to be fairly sensitive to prosody, mm. the rhythm of spoken words and their intonation and musicality. 
I'll sometimes spontaneously sing a phrase, <laughs> either to an existing melody or an ad-libbed one. And I know a lot of people do that too, but it just spontaneously occurs in, in my speech sometimes, and I, I, that's part of my idiolect. And the fourth one I came up with was I like to insert quotes from songs, movies, and TV shows into my <laughs> conversation. But really only if I think the other person is going to recognize the quote. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I feel like the cleverness of it is lost and it's not worth doing. <laughs> but uh, that's, that's those are four things I think kind of define some of my idiolect. I don't know. Is there anything else you would add to that, Tessa? Yeah. Well, I do think it is easier for someone else to notice certain things about you from the outside. Mm-hmm. And so something that I thought of, I'm, I know there are more that I won't be able to come up with off the top of my head, but was you pronounce the word, the plural of potato, potatoes. Oh, interesting. I never noticed that. <laughs> yeah. So things like that pronunciations, mm-hmm. and it could be from, how, you know, where you grew up and how your family pronounced things. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just your style, mm-hmm. but it's different than the way I pronounce it. And and we've noticed things like that in our children, the way that they pronounce some things. Absolutely. And so it can be based on your family and your region. And there are some really fun things that my parents say based on where they grew up and how things were said when they were growing up. So. Absolutely. Like I think back on my grandparents, my grandpa would always say battery for yes. battery uh-huh. and things like that. And which all constituted his idiolect. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say he was the only person who ever pronounced it that way. But... That was one attribute that helped define his unique style of Mm -hmm. speech. And that's really what it comes down to. Like, my idiolect is my personal implementation of language. Mm -hmm. Uh, My choice of words, my pronunciations, my quotes and melodies, and how I choose to use those. Those are unique to me, and they form my idiolect. And what I found was interesting is that it's not a fixed thing. Your idiolect is constantly changing. Every time you learn a new word... Every time you learn how to pronounce something correctly, <laughs> like internship. Intern- <laughs> you said <laughs> it right the first right. time. You did it. <laughs> <laughs> Some of these things I struggle with because they're not words I ever say out loud. But, mm. um, but every time you learn how to say something right, as opposed to wrongly, if you watch a show often, you might find yourself using quotes from that show in your speech hanging out with someone, you might start adopting some of their speech patterns. Absolutely. When I was in Russia, I spent a lot of time with someone from Poland and people started to ask me if I was from Poland. Yeah. When I was in Korea, same sort of thing. Um, I lived with a guy who was from the south of South Korea. I was in South Korea, but he was from the south of South Korea. (laughs) And he had a very country-ish kind of accent in his Korean and people started asking me if I, obviously they knew I wasn't Korean, but if I'd learned Korean from that area. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we, we pick up those speech patterns and the pronunciations and the, mm-hmm. the idioms, which I think comes back to why language itself is such a vibrant topic, because its vitality lies in its usage. And that is entirely defined by the idiolects of the people who, who use it, who speak it. And you've mentioned before, Tessa, that dictionaries do not define a language. Mm-hmm. They describe how a language is used. Yes. And that usage begins in the idiolects of its speakers. Mm-hmm. If a word finds its way into enough idiolects, that's where it also finds its way into a dictionary. Absolutely. It's interesting to think of it in terms of the idiolect being the where the language starts. Right, the breeding ground for yeah. new words and yeah, ideas. 
That's a good way to put it. And interestingly, there's an entire field called forensic linguistics, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which attempts to identify individuals by their idiolects. This has been used to analyze notes and messages in such instances as kidnappings, suicides, domestic terrorism, also like um, 911 calls, things Mm. like that. For instance, the Unabomber was caught with the assistance of a forensic linguistic. Wow. Linguist. I did not know that. Because the Unabomber requested that his essay be published, Mm -hmm. and so it was. And his brother (laughs) read the essay and was like, that's a lot like Ted's writings. Wow. Because Ted Kaczynski was the Unabomber, and Mm -hmm. he was this recluse. And his brother recognized that, told the FBI, gave him some of Ted's other writings, like letters he'd written, and this linguist then analyzed the two and was like, there's enough evidence here to get a search warrant. Wow. So they issued a search warrant and eventually led to his arrest. That is amazing. The power of language. Seriously. (laughs) And there's actually another instance I read about how there was a book written in 2013, and I'm not going to remember what it was called, but people read the book and were like, this is a lot like J.K. Rowling's (laughs) And someone actually took the text of J.K. Rowling's, one of her (laughs) Harry Potter books and another book that she wrote, analyzed it, compared it with this other one, and were like, yeah, it's pretty sure, and confronted her, and she eventually acknowledged that, yeah, she wrote it. Wow. It's very true. Language and our own linguistic fingerprint, our idiolect, is very identifying. And uh, I think it would be remarkably hard to try to consciously change your idiolect. Yes. Like in the case of these writers, who it would be hard to step back and say, okay, I don't want to be recognized, so I'm going to... Do something differently, but what do you do differently? How do you... <laughs> I think it's possible to do. You just have to be able to really analyze what you are doing and change it. It's true. But yes, it there's... would be not natural. Yeah, and there's an example. Um, Robert Jordan was the author of The Wheel of Time, and he died before he finished the series. Mm. And Brandon Sanderson, another fantasy author, was brought on to finish it. And I feel like Brandon Sanderson did a very good job of adopting... Robert Jordan's mm-hmm. idiolect, his style of writing and speaking in those books. But it's not perfect. There are parts where you're like, yeah, well, that's Brandon. <laughs> so it, it's really fascinating. So I don't know if any of our listeners have ever thought about their own speech mannerisms or what makes your way of speaking unique to you, but you should give it a try. It was really kind of enlightening to think about it. And maybe ask those around you to kindly comment on your speech <laughs> patterns and see what they say. You might learn something about what makes your speech unique. Yeah. And one aspect of that that I I feel like we should emphasize is that there's not a value associated with different idiolects. That's a great point. And people often try to place a value on it and say, this is superior to this, right? It's just different and it comes from a different source. And it's just, it's important to just respect and enjoy and Maybe even savor the differences in other people's idiolects. It's so true. If we all spoke the same way, it would be so boring. Mm-hmm. Like you think of the actors you enjoy hearing. I'm, I'm listening to an audiobook now with an amazing narrator who has such a gift for accents. Mm. And um, even though he didn't write the book, he is able with his talents to bring the text on the page to life. And and all of that comes down to the idiolects that were represented 
by the different characters. And the book would be so dull if everyone spoke the same way. So same with real life. We, we need to appreciate the, the richness in the idiolects around us. Absolutely. Because it's all just different, not wrong. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much. That was a fascinating discussion. Something good to think about. And well, thank you listeners for joining us again. And we hope that you will continue to enjoy our podcast and we will see you next time. Thanks so much.